eldest son Jack is four and he's just starting to get excited about Christmas. And before now, leading up to Christmas, we have been the ones trying to enthuse him. Um, but he's only shown excitement in the very moments, um, such as when he finds his presence on Christmas morning. Um, but there hasn't been any sense of anticipation. But this year he knows Christmas is coming and is excited but he has no concept of the time. He wants to know if Christmas is one sleep away, two sleeps away, three sleeps away. So when we say it's over 20 sleeps away, he just has to let it go as it's too far away for him to comprehend. How can he get excited about something that is so far away? It's like the people of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where it is always winter, but never Christmas. C.S. Lewis taps into that sense of longing that children have for it to be Christmas Day. The torture of waiting for Christmas when it never comes. The pain of waiting for something which seems impossible. And for Christians, I think we can feel that way too. For the Christian life is a life of waiting. We are a people who are always waiting. Now, I am probably one of the most impatient people you can meet. Um, I look for shortcuts when I'm driving. Um, I try and work out which is the shortest queue in the supermarket. And I unclip my uh, seatbelt as soon as the car gets on the drive. I find it very hard to be in the moment. And I'm constantly thinking of the next thing, something which has been highlighted by becoming a mummy. And I remember at the age of 25, I'd been waiting seven years for an answer to prayer. And, um, and I got my answer. And I remember praying, thank you, Lord, for teaching me patience. How naive I was. For we will always need to keep on learning to have more and more patience. But as a Christian, a key part of my faith is trusting and believing that Jesus will return. And that involves waiting and being patient. The theme of patience runs through the book of James, like Blackpool runs through a stick of rock. This theme is James' constant reminder that we are living within a story and we are waiting for the conclusion As it says in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. We are waiting for the Lord to return. We are awaiting people as we wait for the Lord to return. So the question we're looking at today is not, will we have to wait But how do we wait? And I think James shows us really well in this passage how to wait. So if you want to open your Bibles in James 5 um, at verse 7. So firstly, we wait patiently. Verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. The Lord is coming again. Christians have an end in view. We know history is not just repeating itself meaninglessly, nor is it a chance collision of circumstances. It is the unfolding of the divine purpose, and God is working inevitably, relentlessly, towards the consummation of his eternal will. Part of God's will is that at the appropriate time, Christ will return. And G- James reminds us about this in the passage, verses 7 to 9. 
because it reminds us of that future hope because it needs to inform how we live now. Knowing that Christ will return and we will live with him forever is a powerful motivator to holy living, to put our faith into action in our speech, relationships at home and church, our plans, how we use our money, and all the other examples that James has given us in his letter. I suspect that when Jesus finally appears, many of us will have the same sense as I have often have. How could we be so foolish as to doubt it? How could we think that just because it was later than we had wanted and hoped, it might mean he would never come at all? Every generation of Christians has prayed that he would come as he promised. And so far, every generation has had to learn the lesson of patience. Indeed, the command to be patient and the fact that patience is one of the key aspects of the Spirit's work in our lives might in itself tell us that such a precious gift is going to be needed. We shouldn't be surprised at the delay. The Jewish people, after all, had lived with exactly that problem through the long centuries when they had wanted their Messiah to come and sort everything out. And some of them had begun to believe that the promises hadn't, after all, meant what they'd said. But once again, it's a matter of humility, one of James's primary lessons. Don't imagine that our timescale corresponds to God's timescale. James tells us to think of the farmer. Now, I would never claim to have green fingers at all, but I have planted some things in my lifetime, and for ages, nothing seems to change. We bought Jack a little mini garden for the summer holidays, and uh, once he decorated the outside of it and planted the seeds, nothing seemed to happen. He wanted instant growth, and the cool plants that were on the box of the garden, to be in front of him immediately. But the farmer knows that it just takes time, more time than we might like. Farmers learn to live with the rhythm of the seasons. Our frantic modern society, which wants to have every vegetable in the shop all year round, and so brings them by plane from far away, has done its best to obliterate the need for patience. It's all the more important that we, who follow Jesus, should learn it and practice it. The way to do this is, as usual in James, to focus our attention on God himself. The Lord, he says in verse 11, is deeply compassionate and kind. How hard it is to believe that sometimes, but how vital How easy it is, by contrast, to think of God as remote, uncaring, unfeeling. Or if he feels anything, perhaps we think he's annoyed or cross with us about this or that. Well, there may be things to sort out. But as James has said, God's mercy is sovereign. This is the deepest truth about him. That was the truth glimpsed by the great prophets of old, as mentioned in verse 10. Through long acquaintance with God himself, they had learned to see the truth behind the way things seemed, to see the heavenly dimension of ordinary earthly reality, to see the heavenly timescale intersecting with the earthly one. 
Whatever circumstances we face, however hard things seem, however hopeless or desperate the situation surrounding us, we can speak out and declare the promises of God into those situations. That is faith, to see beyond what our eyes are telling us and to trust that the God who made the heavens and the earth loves us and has given us promises. And we have to stand on those promises and cling to them. Some of my favorite declarations in those times um, is a verse, he will give you back the years the locusts have eaten. For the, that's been for the seasons of my life where things have felt so unjust, or where the time has gone by without a seeming answer to prayer. Or another promise in Romans, we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. That's a hard one to believe at times. I face things in my life where there seems to be no good left, no good anywhere to be found. Yet God has and does find a way, although sometimes it's a long time before we can see it. When my dad walked out on us, there seemed no good anywhere. Yet God restored my relationship with my mum and gave me something more valuable, something it took a very long time to see. There have also been times in my life where I've been at rock bottom, where the circumstances have been hopeless and impossible. And all I've been able to say is the name of Jesus over and over. The name of Jesus. Holding the greatest promise of of a restored relationship with God. The name that brings dead things back to life and restores futures, and heals what is sick. Let us never forget the power of the name of Jesus and all that that name carries when we bring it into a situation. The prophets had a particular job to deliver a particular message, but their role involved looking beyond their circumstances and calling into being the things of the kingdom of God. Whatever we are facing, by declaring God's promises over our life, we are looking beyond our circumstances, imagining and believing that God will bring those promises into fruition into our lives in the same energy as the prophets of the Old Testament did. Job is the example given by James in verse 11. Now, Job, I mean, if you know the story at all, he faced unbelievable suffering. He lost all his family, all his belongings, his health. And yet when that happened, it says in Job chapter 1, verse 21, he turned to God in worship. It says, verse 21, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job refused to give in to the advice of his friends to turn his back on God. Instead, he declared that God deserved his praise. He said he would praise God whether his circumstances on earth changed or not. He looked beyond his earthly circumstances to a God of love and power who he knew ultimately he could trust. 
God answered Job's faithfulness in the book of Job chapter 42. We see it says, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. Job saw the fruit of his patience and endurance in his lifetime. But we may not see the fruit of our patience and endurance in our lifetime, which is why we have to remember that the day will come when all will be well and God will make everything right. Some of the fruit we have been waiting for will not be harvested this side of heaven, but we keep waiting and trusting. So how do we hold on to that hope of heaven? How do we hold on to the fact that we have waited and waited and yet see nothing on earth? Well, we have to wait prayerfully. Because when we pray, we lift our eyes to heaven. And the more we do that, the more we long for heaven to come. It says in verse 13, um, who, well, who does James exhort to pray? In verse 13, those who are in trouble, happy or sick. Well, that covers most of us all of the time. Prayer is a powerful, dynamic force that makes a difference. In verse 16, we are reminded that prayer is powerful and effective. In verse 14, James goes on to talk specifically about prayer for those who are sick. Now notice we have the twin truths of obedience and faith mentioned. There are commands to be obeyed. Let them pray. Let them sing songs of praise. Call for the elders. But notice that when the elders are called to pray over someone who is sick, it is the prayer offered in faith that makes the sick person well. Both obedience and faith are required. Obedience to call people to pray, faith to believe our prayers will be answered. But many of us know that praying in faith does not always seem to work, or at least it does not appear to in terms of the physical healing that we long and hope for. At our previous church, one of our friends, John, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And when all the treatments stopped working, we gathered together as a church family to pray for his healing. We banged on the doors of heaven. We had the faith to believe that God could do this. We cried, we kneeled, we lay on the floor, we worshipped. We asked God to work. We sought his face. And God did show up because he always does. Sadly for John, that didn't mean physical healing, although we know it sometimes does. But he testified to a tremendous spiritual uplift that held him until he closed his eyes and opened them in eternity. I know for many of the church family here, you have a similar testimony for Richard. And I'm sure other brothers and sisters over the years. And although we live with the disappointment of not seeing our loved ones healed, we would never have not prayed for that with the belief that God could have changed the circumstances. And indeed, we will pray today and every day for healing because we know God hears and can heal. When our prayers are not answered how we wanted them to be, it can seem like they have not been answered at all. But God reigns. And like James reminds us, he is loving and compassionate. 
We should not separate the first part of our reading from this part. The Lord will come again. And then there will be no need, uh, no more need for healing as we will all be healed. We have to hold the patience and faith to wait and wait trusting in our Heavenly Father, the God who answers our prayers with the answer he knows is best. The God who this passage reminds us is full of compassion and mercy. We pray and we keep on praying for healing. As Watchman Nee, a leader of the Chinese underground, says, Our prayers lay the track down which God's power can come. Like a mighty locomotive, his power is irresistible, but it cannot reach us without rails. Our job is to pray and have faith. So we wait patiently. We wait prayerfully. And finally, we wait for Jesus to return purposefully. Well, what is that purpose? To point to Jesus. We live a life that purposefully points to Jesus by the way we act differently to the world around us and the way we understand that relationship with Jesus is the most important thing, so desire it for others as well as ourselves. So first, purposefully acting differently to those around us. It says in verse 12, um, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. James insists that saying yes and no is quite enough. Anything more risks invoking not divine support, but divine judgment. What lies behind the teaching of both James and Jesus here is that following Jesus is supposed to be the path to a genuine human existence. And genuine human life should issue in clear, straight, honest speaking. To add oaths or other embellishments to what we are saying has the effect of making it look as though a plain statement isn't enough. And secondly, how do we wait purposefully? Desiring others to be in relationship with Jesus. If you look at verses 19 and 20. James ends his letter seemingly rather abruptly. But as I've prepared for today, I've seen the power in the beauty of this abruptness. We all have the problem of sin between us and God. And Jesus dealt with it once and for all on the cross. By believing and trusting in this, we know the freedom from the penalty of our sins and the freedom to pursue a relationship with the Father, as we will shortly be remembering when we come for communion. How we should long for our friends and family to have that same freedom and to be able to know that their sins are covered by Jesus and that death is not the end. The theologian Douglas Mee says these last two verses are an appropriate conclusion. Not only should the reader of James do the words he has written, they should be deeply concerned to see others do them also by turning to the truth, so that they would know freedom from their sins. So we are reminded as we end the book of James that we are awaiting people. Nicky Gumbel reminds us that Joseph waited 13 years, Abraham waited 25 years, Moses waited 40 years, and Jesus waited 30 years. He says, if God makes you wait, you are in good company. 
If God is making us wait, James shows us how we can wait. We can wait patiently, prayerfully and purposefully. And we are heading into a season of the church which we associate with waiting, the season of Advent, when we wait, remembering how Jesus came the first time and how he will come again. I always have good intentions around Advent, but often find the busyness of the season pushes out the stillness and contemplation that I crave for in this time. I think the age that um, my boys are has pushed me into action more this year. I want it to be more than just about having a chocolate every day and then having a pile of presents at the end of it. I want this season to be a special time for them. So I've set out uh, for us as a family to enter this season of waiting in a different way. John T and I have decided to do the Jesse tree with the boys this year, where we spend the last part of the day reading part of the story from the creation to the cross every night. We also have a Christian book advent calendar, so every night the boys will have a new story to read. But don't worry, they will have chocolate as well. <laughs> I, have, I have some very romantic dreams in my head about what Advent might look like, and it might all result in carnage, but our intention is to wait differently this year. And to prepare the boys to learn to wait well as they live their lives for Jesus. How might we wait differently this Advent? We are awaiting people. Supremely, we are waiting for Jesus to return. James urges us to wait well by being patient, praying in all circumstances, and purposefully pointing people to Jesus in the way we live our lives. How are we going to wait differently?